And this morning we're continuing from what we ended off on last week, which was how do we face false teaching? And we looked at uh, how relevant this was today, and some of you who were here last week remember the mention of the prophet of doom, the gentleman who uh, claims to be a prophet, and that the revelation God has given him is to spray insecticide on his followers, and through that insecticide spraying, demons are cast out, healing, sin. And um, maybe for some of you, it's a bit shocking if it's the first time you've heard it, but that's the reality of what we are facing in this world today, is um, this attack on the church, trying to be led astray away from Christ through false teaching. And so let's read together from verse 1 in chapter 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. And we said last week that Paul arms Timothy with four things. And the first was, just for those of you who weren't here last week, that we are to be a people sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Paul says it's the Spirit that expressly says in later times that many, certainly quite a few, will depart from the faith. And the reason why it's the Spirit is this. It's because it's the job of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Spirit, to lead us into truth. Without the working of the Holy Spirit, we can't see, we can't understand what God wants to give us. And we said that this means by necessity that we are to be a people who are sensitive to the Spirit's leading and guiding. We are to have our attendant tuned. And we talked about how we are to be a people that yearn for both the life of the Spirit. This is very important. We're not just coming for cold academic knowledge. We need the power of the Spirit to live for Jesus. I hope you know that. Galatians says, keep in step with the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. We're not living a godly life by how much we're sweating. We're living a godly life by the leading of the life of the Spirit. And so we have to be so careful about grieving the Spirit, because when we grieve the Spirit, we become spiritually numb. And things that are so fresh to us become distant memories, and eventually become tombstones of an experience that happened decades ago. But also, we are to be a people hungering for the light of the Spirit, where we come to a place in our lives, we let God's Word shine into every area of our lives. As Christians, we do not say to God in any area, you can't go there. And the light of God's word is something which produces spiritual growth. As a plant dies in darkness, so our faith dies without the light 
of the knowledge of Christ that comes to us through the word. And to be a people that are wholly committed to Jesus, we have to have the life of the Spirit and the light of the Spirit at work in our lives. And this is what we said. We said that people are being willing to have doom sprayed on them because they are hungry for the life of the Spirit. They want the supernatural power at any cost. And I want to say this morning, you will be tempted according to which way you just naturally lean. If you're from a charismatic background like myself, we long for the life of the Spirit, but not at the cost of the light. And so these people were coming and allowing in, in Limpopo terrible insecticides. And as a pharmacist, I've got to tell you, that stuff is dangerous. It does damage to you. They are doing it because they are so desperate for the life at the neglect of the light. But also, for us this morning, the warning is this. We must not be so interested in the light that we forget about the life. And when the working of the Spirit is happening, both are coming together in brilliant unison the life, the power of the divine, and the light and power of the truth, both are operating. We also said in the second thing is we are to expect and be ready for false teaching. Paul says expressly, the Spirit says expressly, that in later times some will depart from the faith. And so we are to be ready, church. The moment the gospel hit the ground, that was the moment false teaching started to come into the church. And so we must also not be persuaded by its success. Just because there are many converts to a certain teaching does not mean it's sound. Scripture says some will fall away. Thirdly, we said that we are to be assessors of character. And we said at the heart of these men and women who are promoting themselves without any accountability and above, actually, local churches, is that they are really motivated by selfish ambition. And so when you begin to see someone teach that you have to give to his or her ministry for the real blessing, there's a problem. When there is, it's all about the ego and persona, and you see the, the pyrotechnics and the suits and the helicopter, and everything is about how your anointing will come through his or her anointing, if it is centered on the person. In other words, if the persona of the person is greater than the persona of Christ, there's an issue. We are to be very cautious if that is the case. And secondly, as we said that these men and women... When we're assessing character, they had their consciences seared. And we said last week for the Christian, we must pay attention to our consciences. When the whistle blows, the game stops, right? And even if you don't necessarily agree with your conscience, if you push against it, if you ignore it and play, you end up learning to play the Christian life without any ref on the field. And that's what has happened to these men. They were preaching without any spiritual accountability or sensitivity at all. And so... This brings us to our fourth point. We are to be assessors of content. And in this fourth and final point this morning, I want to ask and answer three questions. The first is, why assessing content is the most important of all? The second is, what is the content by which we assess by? And thirdly, why is the content of what we believe still important for you and me today? And so answering this first question of being assessors of character, why does content always trump anything? That trump has changed in my vocab recently. When I say the word trump, the world seems to have a different view of it. I've just realized that. For the, anyway, let's bring it back to the word of God. Why, why is assessing content the most important of all? The first is this. It's because character 
sometimes only comes out later. And Paul says to Timothy, my boy, the sins of some people are conspicuous. You can see them immediately when they're standing up on stage or when they're on their public platform. They expose their character, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. And so the church has to be careful of the nice guy syndrome. Someone comes up and they're so humble, they're so nice. They give their ministry to the, give their money to the poor. They look so persuasive. They'll tell you about how they heard the Holy Spirit in their quiet time in the morning. They'll talk about how godly they are. Friends, we are not to be taken in. Galatians 1 verse 8 says, Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. This person might look like an angel from heaven. They might come and talk with such gracious words and such an appealing, enticing character that you might go, well, that person's so nice. What they're saying can't possibly be wrong. No, no, no. We are always savvy. What the person says is more important than who the person is. Secondly, is signs and wonders are not a sign of soundness. Church, I have to emphasize it this morning that false teachers do have supernatural power. They are being persuaded and influenced by doctrines of demons. And this morning, you need to know that because a man is gifted or a woman has spiritual power, that does not mean what they say is sound. And it made me think of the story in Acts chapter 16, verse 16 to 18, when Paul was going to a place of prayer, and there was a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. This girl would sit there at the tent or whatever it was in the, in, the, in the square. You'd go pay her owners, and she would give you revelation either about your past or about the future. She and she was pretty good. And she even had the ability through the demonic to prophesy. And eventually Paul gets fed up. <laughs> And uh, this she kept on doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Church, this morning, I would not be surprised if someone was healed by having doom sprayed on them. It's not beyond possibility. I would not be surprised if that man had accurate knowledge of the past, snippets of it, not everything, the present, and possibly even the future. But again, signs and wonders are not a sign of soundness. Just because there is supernatural power present does not mean that there is supernatural truth. And lastly, is the reason why content is so important is this. is because false teachers tend to twist Scripture to support their standing. And out of all of it, I've got to tell you, as on an eldership, the most difficult false teaching we face are those that claim soundness of their teaching by quoting Scripture, and sometimes in a bombarding way. And the problem with false truth is this, is that there's often an element of truth to it. And so often now when I find people saying, what do you think of so-and-so and so-and-so? The answer is, well, which part do you mean? Do you mean the part where they say this, or do you mean the part where they say that? Because the most effective form of false teaching always has an ingredient of truth. Otherwise, we would just outright reject it. And this is what these false teachers in Timothy were doing. We must really pay attention to this. They were looking to the Old Testament to support their teaching. They desired in 1 Timothy 
chapter 1, verse 7, to be teachers of the law. And these people were leading large portions of the congregation away persuasively because they were quoting Scripture. But you see, what false teachers always do, and this is the classic textbook case that Paul talks about how they use Scripture is important. And first of all, he says, tell them not to teach a different doctrine or to devote themselves to myths. Now, that is a, a very important word. What these false teachers were doing is they were taking Old Testament stories and basing their conclusions absolutely without history or historical context. A myth is something where somebody sits down and goes, how can I invent something to explain what I want to or what I see? And how many of you know Greek mythology? You know about Greek mythology? Some of you, it's on TV quite a lot lately. Yes? It is totally without any historical fact or context. And again, we have to know, church, that, uh, let me get to that point later. The second thing they do is they will go to obscure texts called genealogies. I recently read 1 Chronicles chapter 1 to 9. It is nine chapters of the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so. I tell you, to find anything for me personally out of those nine chapters, and the only, it was so difficult. The only reason why I did it was because I believe in the Word of God from start to finish. And there is some helpful kind of historical context. But what these people were doing is they were taking these obscure texts in Scripture that you would never get major teaching from and basing their entire teaching on it. And so they were doing two things. The one was they were inventing meaning to Scripture. The second is they were going to obscure scriptural texts to kind of major teaching as their major teaching basis. Now, why do I go through so much trouble to explain this? Because of this. We as a 21st century church are in big trouble because of the way we have learned to approach Scripture. And I was having uh, lunch with a friend this week who explained it so well. He said, you know, Matt, the great trouble that we have is we tend to see Scripture as a string of pearls. And this is what daily devotions do. <laughs> have to come back to this. Is daily devotion teaches you to see Scripture as a pearl to be picked out for your encouragement for the day. And so we have Jeremiah 29 verse 11. We have these scriptural pearls that we get to. And it trains us to think of Scripture merely as these pearls of wisdom for us to be taken for our own mutual encouragement and edification in the faith. But this is what the false teachers want to do. This is how they operate. Is they will say, look at this scripture. Look at this scripture. Look at this scripture. And they will invent a string of pearls so that the necklace that they wear looks so convincing. But this is why there's an issue with that way of interpreting scripture. Because scripture is not a string of pearls Church, Scripture is a chain of thought. It's so important. So that when you open up a book of the Bible, there is a purpose for writing it. There is a specific audience. And just like when you have to put a business uh, proposal together, um, Karen, let's say she has to send an uh, email through to her boss, and she's got an awesome deal, but she has to justify spending a certain part of the budget. She's hoping that her boss reads that email systematically, not so. She's hoping he doesn't start, oh, warm regards, Karen. Oh, she, li she likes me. That's good. Or we're needing five million rand more for the Five million rand more for the budget. She hasn't even had a chance to explain what she's trying to say. 
Scripture has a historical context. And what you and I have to get back to is this. Understanding that the way we interpret Scripture is understanding what it said for that audience then, in that space of time. It's not a myth. That historical context, what it was saying then, ah, and what it says now. And secondly, we have to learn to grapple with Scripture on a big scale, meaning the mega-narrative. There is a composite whole to Scripture. And the way that you expose false teaching is, how does their teaching, these little pearls that they want to cast before people, weigh up with the whole counsel of God, as Paul calls it? I want to challenge you this morning. 70 years ago, the person in the pew knew their Bible as well as the person preaching. And the mark of a faithful elder, the mark of a good preacher, a faithful pastor is to raise the level of his congregation to the point where they are able to hold accountable the preacher. Where they are able to have such a grasp of the truth that when a person stands up here, no matter how charismatic they are, no matter how persuasive they are in their textual jumping around, no matter even how persuasive their intellectual argument is, you're a tough crowd. <laughs> and I want to say this morning, I commend you. Daily devotions are not sinful. And some of you are faithful in it. But I want to say, if you are going to grow in a way that gives you the word, in that light that we have, that shines upon us, it grows our faith, we have to learn to know Scripture in a way that it is a chain of thought, not a string of pearls. The second question I want to answer this morning is, what is the content by which we assess? And this is very important too. Because for us, although it's hard for us to realize that this letter has been written in the context where the New Testament hadn't been finished yet, there was an absolute confidence in the early church that the truth was the truth. And when Paul says to Timothy in 1, chapter, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, he says, tell these certain people not to teach different doctrine. The only way you know something is different is if you know the truth, not so. The only way that you know that this is the word of God is by having the word of God soundly established to the church so that when something comes up against that template, you can say, hmm, that doesn't match up to you scripture. And what Paul said to Timothy was in verse 6 of chapter 4, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Church, this morning, you and I need to know as believers, what we stand on is solid ground. That this truth has come very differently to the church than what these false teachers were proclaiming. What these false teachers were doing is they were inventing these things. Paul calls it speculations. They were with their own intellect and their own cleverness devising their own teaching. But Paul says, no, 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 that's not how the church got truth. The church didn't come through some person who, uh, the truth didn't come to some person who sat down in his study and started to write down and say, this is what we believe. No, no, no. He says, subtly, in verse 4 of chapter 1, he says, the truth is the stewardship from God that is by faith. It says, tell these people not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. 
And what I'm preaching on this morning, the reason why I believe in preaching, the reason why the church exists, is because we believe that truth hasn't come through a man. We believe that truth has come from God. And that this truth is merely to be stewarded. I say this again. That what I am preaching this morning hasn't come from Matt Johnson. What we were singing in worship didn't come from the head of some worship leader who just decided these words were pretty and nice. Christian truth is not philosophy. It has come to us by a revelation of the Holy Spirit. And what I am merely doing this morning is I am stewarding what is not my own. A steward is somebody who is over someone else's property. And a steward normally is placed over their property because it's of great worth. And this morning, for us as Christians, we have to know that truth was so confidently asserted in that first generation church. And that that truth clearly to the apostles were not coming from themselves. It was coming as a revelation from the Spirit. And that's why Jude says in 1 Jude verse 3, Earnestly contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And in understanding what this content is by which we assess false teaching, I want us just to stop shortly for a moment to look at how this revelation came to the church. There was a moment when Jesus said to his disciples, Boys, who do people say that I am? And they replied, well, some say that you're a prophet, some say that you're a teacher, some say that you're Elijah back from the dead. And then he turns it around and he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says in verse 16 of Matthew chapter 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says something so profound here in verse 17. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, that Bar is son of Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, Petros, which is the rock in Greek. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And in the church today, there are, there, well, over a period of time, people have contested what the rock is. Because it's a bit ambiguous what Jesus is saying. Does he mean the revelation that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that that is the cornerstone and foundation on which the church is built? Or is it Petros, Peter, the apostle, this, this apostolic eyewitness upon which the church was going to be built? I want to say to you this morning, it's both. What we weigh any teaching by is the rock that Jesus Christ implemented. And the rock is this divine revelation that he is this, the Christ, the son of the living God, in the hands of the first generation apostles. And why I say this is this. It was in Acts chapter 242 that the church devoted themselves to what? The apostles' teaching. For them, what was the rock on which they built their faith and planted churches was this first generation of apostles. And this is important because 
After the death of John the Apostle, who wrote Revelation and 1, 2, 3 John, he was the oldest. He died of natural causes. He was about 90 years old. That New Testament that came through their ministry closed. And after the first generation of apostles, we are not to add a single thing to that revelation, and we are not to tamper with it by changing its contents or taking it away. And you might say, well, what does that mean, Matt? It means this, that when another movement claiming to be a part of the church, I'll give you an example, Mormonism, where you had this man, Joseph Smith, having this angel called Moroni come and tell him about the real revelation, how the church needs to be reformed, he added the Book of Mormon to the Scriptures. We reject that. Because the rock on which we stand is the first generation of apostles. And their teaching, it is the Spirit given to them and the revelation given to the church in their hands that is the solid rock on which the church is built. And so when somebody wants to come and add a new revelation, and this is what false teachers do, I have had a divine anointing, a revelation from God that he's going to do so and so, or that he will do this and this and this. And if it's an addition to that first generation of apostles, church, we reject it. Secondly, is if that first generation witness is tampered with. That's why we don't have fellowship with Jehovah's Witnesses. And they will come as reformers into the church, into our homes. But they had to establish their own translation, the New World Translation, which tampered with the original Greek text in order that they could accommodate their teaching. And when you move into no trinity, that Jesus is the archangel Michael, that the Holy Spirit is a force, not a person, the non-existence of hell, the annihilation of the, soul, of the unsaved. When you move into that, the tampering of the first generation of apostles' witness, we reject it. And I want to ask you this morning, is this truth something you stake your life on? Because unless you believe this first generation apostolic witness, there is no salvation. John chapter 3 verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That was written by the hand of an apostle. And if you don't believe that this morning, it is the difference between hell and heaven. Our eternal destinies, church, rest on whether we believe that this first generation apostolic witness is the rock. That's how serious it is. And I want to say this this morning as well. It is the job of every generation of Christians to go back to that first generation. And the men that who have rescued the church were the men who went back to that revelation. How many of you have ever heard of the man Athanasius? It's okay. He's an amazing man. The whole world, including the church, said that Jesus was not co-divine with the Father. He was not of the same substance as the Father. And Athanasius stood up and said, no, it is wrong. And someone said to Athanasius, Athanasius! The whole world is against you. And Athanasius said, then Athanasius is against the world. Because he went back to the first generation of apostles that the church was saved. That today we accept as sound orthodox faith that Jesus is co-divine with the Father. My friends, it was only because of a man that was willing to stake his life upon the first apostolic witness that the church was rescued. 
George Whitfield stood up in front of the Anglican Church, which had fallen into such morality. And the thing that changed Britain and changed the Western world that caused the gospel to spread like wildfire was Whitfield going back to the first apostolic witness of this doctrine of regeneration. If you want to be a Christian, you must be born again. Church is not going to save you. Your christening is not going to save you. These things that the Anglican church had fallen into are not going to save you. Men changed the world and turned it upside down by going back to that first generation. Luther stood up against the might of the 16th century Roman Catholic church on his own authority? No. He staked his life to preserve justification by faith. That when the might of the Catholic Church was saying, you must say revoco, you must recant, you must denounce your teachings, he stood before the world and said, here I stand, I can do no other. Friends, life and death is weighed by our commitment to the first apostolic witness. And I want to say this morning, the reason why denominations die, the reason why Anglicanism's in decline, even Baptists, Methodists, is because they keep going back to the superstructure instead of the foundation. So they keep looking back at the tradition of what the superstructure of the church was like in Wesley's day. And if Wesley was here, he would say to the Methodists, don't come back to me. I'm not the foundation on which you build on. You go back to the apostles' teaching. And when the church does that, the world is turned upside down because every generation has the gospel communicated to it in a way it needs. Why? Because the church keeps coming back again and again to the rock, which is this apostolic witness. And I've got so much more to say, but I'm going to end on this. Why is content still so important? For you and me. You might be saying this morning, Matt, this sounds very academic. Isn't it your job as an elder in the church to oversee my theology? Yes and no. Because you see, the reason why content is still so important is that false teaching always leads to bondage. I'll say it again. The reason why this apostolic witness is so important that you and me need to go back to it again and again is because if we don't, anything other than the truth leads to bondage. Look what the consequences were of this false teaching in verse 3 of chapter 4. Who forbid marriage... And require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. The consequences of this false teaching was not gospel freedom, was not growing confidence in the grace of God, was not a good conscience, was not intimacy with the Father, was not this peace of resting in our position before Christ. No, it came to, you, came to the church through performance. And what they were laying on these people was a heavy burden. Young men... If this teaching was allowed to stand, you would never be married. That is awful. 
Because this physical pleasure in marriage that God designed in us and actually put in us to drive us to marriage. You've got to love the Frank German Martin Luther. He said, fear drives us to faith and sex drives us to marriage. He is so true. It's for years. If these people did not have the truth telling them that marriage is a gift from God, physical pleasure is a gift from God, procreation and intimacy is a gift from God, that when you're going to pick and pay, you don't have to worry about what you eat. Man, I'm telling you, it's a bit like the banting people here this morning. You put such heavy burden on us carb lovers. Don't touch this. Don't do that. My friends, it's the same under false teaching. What does false teaching do? It leaves you in bondage with a bad conscience. Because the one swing of the arm of false teaching, and I wish I had a chance to explain both, but I only have one this morning. It is legalism. And this morning... There is teaching in the church that holds people captive because it's false. And you can never separate your relationship with God from what you believe. What you believe shapes you. And Paul says the way that you are able to enjoy what God has said is good in all of his creation, the way that you are able to enjoy food, the way that you are able to have a good, clear conscience is by knowing the truth. Don't you think it's interesting, he says. They forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received, to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. And this morning, there are people here who for years have lived in bondage. And the bondage is this. These guys taught, these false teachers, that it's what you do, your performance, and whether you are getting rules and regulations right that give you confidence before God. That is the essence of legalism. It is based in performance. And it never, ever, ever gives you a clear conscience because this side of the grave, church, we are never going to be perfect. Over and above that is you're never, ever sure you're saved because you're always looking to your performance to give you assurance. But friends, our performance is never perfect. And so when we stand before God, the sum total of a legalistic conscience is this. You're always disappointed in yourself. And you always fear rejection from God. Because rooted in your relationship with Him is your confidence is ultimately based in how well I'm doing. That's bondage. That's bondage. And the release, the gospel freedom that is for you and me is this. Is that what stimulates love all worship and wonder for God is not how well we are performing. I speak from experience. If you want to base your relationship with God on a checklist, it kills love for Him. You know what performance does? It gives you God as a judge, not as a father. God only is ever to you a person who's evaluating whether you're getting it right or wrong. The thing that sets us free is this. 
It is unconditional love. And if love is unconditional, we can only have it by grace. And the foundation of our faith, this is the rock, is that God receives us, not on our performance, but on our position. Is that while we were still sinners, in the worst track record possible, the grace of God found us. And what Paul says is, don't let any false teaching cut in on you. Don't go back to that yoke of slavery of saying you received your salvation by grace, yes, but now you have to keep it by performance. Friends, a gift is given with no strings attached. And that might offend you. I want to say that's good. Because until the scandal of the grace of God offends us, we don't realize how big it is. And the thing that's going to stir your love for Jesus and a love that fuels obedience to the work of the Spirit in your life is not performance. It's recognizing that freely we have received and freely we give. Is that we are able to have a clear conscience from God. With, we are able to enjoy intimacy with Him. We're able to discover His will for our lives. We're able to look anybody in the eye without any strickening of conscience, having perfect peace with the Father and having perfect peace with the world around us by coming back again and again to what we have freely received. That's gospel freedom. And that freedom is for you and me. And I don't care what you've done this morning. You could be so disappointed with your performance this morning. You will not recover until you start again and again from your position. Jesus said, isn't this amazing? If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. You're not struggling. You're not striving. You're not sweating. You're remaining where God has put you. And out of this position that we live and move and have our being, there is a freedom that no performance can buy. But you only get that if you come back to the first generation of the apostles, to their teaching. And truth comes to us this freedom of a good conscience, of intimacy with God, of peace with Him and man, of having a sense of pleasing Him, being acceptable to Him, being forgiven. It comes by resting on the truth. That Christ has given us a position that is secure before Him. And that's the start of recovery. That's where true freedom is found in this apostolic witness. Let's pray.
Jesus, when your disciples were deserting you, the thousands of men and women who had crowded around your person, enraptured with your teaching, when they started to desert you, as there was an increasing revelation that, Lord, unless we eat of you and drink of you, we have no life in us. And when your disciples, the last 12, were around you and you were alone and you asked them, why aren't you leaving me? Are you two going to go? And they replied to you, where shall we go, teacher? For you alone have the words of life. Father, I pray for that to grip us as a church. That this revelation in the hands of this apostolic witness, this New Testament crystallized in the power of your spirit and the freedom that it brings, I pray that we'd be a courageous people that build our lives on it, that the world might be against us, but Lord, we stand against the world if necessary. As a pillar holding forth the truth, and a foundation that builds itself upon it. Lord, this is the work of the church. And I pray this morning that there would be life and healing and abundance as, Lord, we choose to come afresh to your word of life. And that we will be bold to stand in our declaration of it. And we'll be bold to stand in our adherence to it. For the sake of the world, Lord, we pray. For the sake of a good conscience. For the sake of peace with God and man. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Lord bless you.